from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. If you love music like we do, then you've likely got a set of songs that define who you are. Today, Jim and I share the music that made us. Plus, we'll talk to journalist Jody Rosen about what was lost when fire ripped through Universal Music Group's Los Angeles archives. That's the thing. When you lose the master, when you lose the original, you lose not just the the sonic richness of the original, but you lose the possibility of all kinds of subsequent information and revelations. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll be talking about some of the songs that made us who we are. Every music lover, Greg, has songs that really define them. But first, we're going to talk about an article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago that has had musicians, fans, and the entire music industry buzzing. That is so true, Jim. The article is called The Day the Music Burned, and in it, reporter uh, Jody Rosen talks about a fire that broke out at a Universal Studios Hollywood warehouse in 2008. Now, that warehouse contained archival materials from film and TV, but also many tapes containing music masters. At the time, Universal downplayed the fire, and it didn't get much media attention. But uh, Rosen's extensive reporting uh, revealed a much larger tragedy. He found that hundreds of thousands of original music recordings were lost from artists ranging from Billie Holiday to Nirvana. Now, we recently talked with Jody, and we started our conversation by talking about specifically what was lost in that fire. Universal Music Group, of course, is the, is the world's largest record company. It's a big conglomerate that has absorbed many other record labels over the years. And in this place, they kept the masters for Decca Records, a very famous label that goes back many, many decades. They house the masters for Chess, the great Chicago High Guys mm-hmm. um, blues label. Uh, they house the masters for MCA, A&M, ABC Records, uh, Geffen, Interscope, and various dozens of sub-labels of those, um, of those larger record companies, including, for instance, Impulse, the great jazz label that was an ABC subsidiary. So when the fire hit this warehouse and burned up basically everything in there, what were lost were the original masters for... Musicians like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Bing Crosby. Mm. Um, if you move on over to chess, of course, it's Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, John Lee Hooker, Etta James, Muddy Waters. We could go on and on. Uh, the Impulse material, of course, was where, where John Coltrane made his most famous um, recordings. So in total, what they lost by, I mean, this is what their own documents say and what my reporting bears out between 120,000 and 175,000 master tapes and, and 500,000 individual tracks or songs. Let's, let's, before we get any deeper, explain the difference between a master tape and later uh, copies. And Jody, I think you do this so well in the story, saying it's sort of the difference listening to the master tape uh, between uh, looking at the Mona Lisa at the Louvre and seeing a picture of that painting. I mean, basically, the the simplest way to put it is the master tape is the original, right? It is the recording. So in the case of recordings that are made using multi-track recording, you know, where there are discrete elements of the song that are recorded separately, a guitar track, you know, the drums, bass over here, vocal track, or many vocal tracks. 
and then mixed down to make a record, the very first, the kind of Ur recording, is the master tape. And that's the one that, which will have the greatest fidelity, which will sound the best, and which you need to keep around because, of course, the history of the music business is one of a kind of succession of formats, delivery systems for music. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the turn of the century, right, we had wax cylinders. Then, you know, shellac discs, 78 records, LPs, CDs, MP3s, streaming audio. We're in the streaming era now. Well, in order to get the best sound picture, as it were, you have to have recourse to the master when a new format comes in. The Mona Lisa analogy is a good one because the music business really is a business of copies. Any record you hear is by definition a copy. You're not listening to the master tape. You're listening to a copy of the master, but hopefully it's one that's not many, many generations removed from the master because then it's the equivalent of sort of looking at like a photo of the picture postcard and a Xerox of that photo and a Xerox of the Xerox. You know, right. the, the, the further away you get from the original, the more degraded the sound. And more to the point, the less well you know the recording because those masters contain a lot of sonic information. So there's, that's the audiophile argument for masters, but there are, there are other important things about master recordings too which we can well, maybe get into. Yeah, d- definitely get into that, because I think you, you're making the case here that the playback te- technology is improving. It, it, we're getting to the point where we can start to hear more and more from those original master recordings based on the improvements that are being made in technology. I think you highlighted uh, the Beatles, you know, constant updating of the Sgt. Pepper's album as an example of where you can hear new things that we weren't able to hear uh, decades ago because the technology wasn't, wasn't enabling it. So w- that opportunity has been lost for future generations to hear more and more about from these recordings. What else is lost here in this fire as well? Master recordings are weird artifacts. As you say, there's the, there's the, the fidelity issue, the, you know, the kind of the sonic issue. And yes, you know, we, um, we're now at a point in history where we can get more off of the original recording than we could have, you know, 20 years ago because technology is advancing. The, and the, the recording technology almost always outstrips the playback technology. Or that's been the history. But in terms of the other component parts of that artifact, the master recording, or the other important things that you find on a master recording, well, for instance, the, the recordings that were stored in the warehouse on the back lot of Universal Studios, these were largely, but not entirely, analog recordings, So, and they were, they were largely tapes, reel-to-reel tapes. So what you have is a tape box. Often that box will have notes um, recorded mm. on or in the box, which give you more information about the recording, you know, information about the the session, uh, about the musicians that played on it, maybe about what material is found on the tape. And and then, of course, there's the tape itself. Um, What often is the case is on that tape you'll find extra material, you know, outtakes, uh, demos, uh, other versions, studio chatters. Tape is rolling anytime you're ready. Stuff which has inherent historical value, but also may contain, you know, great music that no one's ever heard before. There's a long, long history of people unearthing tapes in vaults and discovering things that they didn't know existed before. That's the thing. When you lose the master, when you lose the original, you lose not just the the sonic richness of the original, but you lose the possibility of all kinds of subsequent information and revelations. So, Jody, uh, we know about some of these big names uh, that have been affected. Uh, their music has been affected in this fire. Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, um, etc. 
What about uh, more contemporary artists? It sounds like there are some big names in there as well, right? If you look at UMG's documents, the documents say that Nirvana, Soundgarden, Hole, uh, Elton John, many, many others <laughs> uh, had material in this vault. Uh, Cheryl Crow was on Twitter saying, I can't believe UMG covered this up. Why am I just hearing about this now? Um, I spoke to a number of artists who told me stories that are published in my New Times piece about their having asked for their master recordings when they had a, um, you know, an anniversary coming up of an album's release and they wanted to release a new reissue with some extra stuff. Uh, for mm -hmm. instance, Brian Adams, one of the top-selling artists in the history of the A&M label, came to A&M a few years back because it was approaching the 30th anniversary of his 1984 album, Reckless. Huge hit album for him. Sold 12 million copies all over the world. He said, okay, let's put out an extra version of this. He went to UMG and said, hey, can we find my stuff, the recordings, the videos, the artwork? The company could not turn up anything in his vault. Mm -hmm. He put out eight albums for a &M. And what Brian Adams told me in an email was, it was like my mm -hmm. entire recorded legacy at A&M had never happened and never existed. Oh, man. What they didn't do is they didn't tell him that there was a fire there. They just said, we can't find uh, it. He uh, found out that there was a fire there when he read the Times article. So yeah. that's the situation here. Um, there's a lot of people who are, are now angry and trying to figure out what stuff was affected. In terms of what I can assert with certainty was lost, can't tell you that the flat master for Nevermind is gone, although Chris Novoselic, the bassist for Nirvana, said on Twitter he thought it was. Lots and lots of artists of the rock era, the hip-hop and R&B era, you know, the, the, the last 20, 30 years, had tapes that burnt up in this vault, had session masters with unreleased material that burnt up in this vault, and it's, there's going to be a reckoning there. Uh, the, the story has opened up a Pandora's box, Jody, in a lot of ways. Uh, we have a number of musicians who are suing U Universal, uh, Tom Petty's estate, T Tupac Shakur's estate, uh, Steve Earle, Hole Soundgarden are suing in, for damages in excess of $100 million. The idea is to open this up to possibly a class action type of suit. We're, we're looking at potentially 700 artists. We don't have a clear idea yet of what exactly was in that storehouse. Well, you know, I'm no lawyer um, and I'm no <laughs> legal analyst, but I do know a little bit about what was and wasn't in the vault. And I also know a little bit about what UMG knew was or wasn't in the vault, which is they didn't have a great idea and the place was very poorly inventoried. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, what seems to me to be the likeliest outcome is a pretty big settlement. They had a good idea of what labels were in the vault. They had a good idea of what artists were in the vault, but they didn't know exactly what was on each individual tape. They're also mm -hmm. blowing a lot of smoke trying to obfuscate what they do know about what was in the vault. They've, there's been some statements put out by the record company, um, a Billboard article in which they sent out the guy who heads their archives, in which he was kind of fudging it a little bit, saying, well, you know, we have many of the things that the Times article claimed were destroyed, we have in our archives. And he, part of their argument is that, you know, not everything in this vault was a first-generation master, which is true, and I didn't advance that argument in my piece. But 
the two oldest and most historically significant labels that had material in the vault and also that had the greatest number of total items in there. I'm talking about Deca and Chess. Nearly mm -hmm. all of those were original masters. So yeah. that's many tens of thousands right there. Apparently they found a Muddy Waters mono master kicking around an archive somewhere. Oh, yeah. Okay, they found a Muddy Waters tape. Someone told me, who is familiar with that vault, that there might have been 2,000 Muddy Waters tapes in the vault. Mm. Okay? Yeah. That's the scale of the issue here. So I don't know what the long-term outcome is of this is going to be. Um, I don't know how many artists will be satisfied that their, that their stuff was or wasn't burnt up. But I know it's a mess. And how it's going to play out is anyone's guess. My guess is there's going to be a lot of money spent. We have been talking to Jody Rosen, the author of this great piece in the New York Times, The Day the Music Burned. Jody, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. When we come back, Greg and I will share just a few of the songs that define us. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm a man. Yeah! Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today, we are talking about the music that made us. We're talking about the music that defines who we are as people. I think every serious music lover has some of those songs. This was an idea generated by our intrepid Sound Opinions crew. I feel like we talk about ourselves a lot, pretty much every time we do a Desert <laughs> Island jukebox. But they were like, okay, if you guys were on the spot, had to choose four songs that were going to define everything you are as a music lover, as a human being, uh, what would they be? Hard, hard to limit it to four. Oh, no kidding, Jim. Impossible, in fact. But uh, we're going to give it a shot. I, I kind of approached mine as, as sort of a timeline in terms of, you know, where I was in life and, and what, what musical signposts kind of defined that particular time in my life. And I think when you're a kid and music hits you in a certain way, you're, you're coming to it with a sort of innocence that you'll never have again. I think it's a really magical time. For me, growing up in Syracuse, New York, the only connection I really had to music was the AM pop radio, and, and people think, well, AM pop radio is pretty boring. But at the time, the top 40, this is in the 70s, was, was pretty diverse, and the diversity of that, I think, helped define me as a, as a music lover. I mean, you look at the top 40 in the summer of 1970, um, you know, a ball of confusion by The Temptations. You had mm. Lay Down, Candles in the Rain by Melanie, which is just one of the weirdest <laughs> top 10 it songs is. ever. Hitchin' a Ride, a great tune by Vanity Fair that The Replacements later covered. You know, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And this song, uh, Frida Payne's Band of Gold, and that's the song I'm going to name for me as a, as a defining song in my young life. I, I remember hearing it on the radio, and besides having a great hook, this great song written by Holland Dozier Holland when they split off from Motown and formed their own Invictus label, and then sound this great jazz-trained singer, Frida Payne. Besides that hook were those lyrics. I just mm. remember Frida sort of dwelling in this darkened room, you know, filled with sadness, filled with gloom, hoping you walk through that door and love me like you tried before. And I'm wondering what happened to this couple. It's their wedding night, and they're sleeping in separate rooms, and she feels alone. And, some, you know, it, was, it built up this whole scenario in my head. I didn't know who Frida Payne was, what she looked like, but I had this whole imaginary scene playing out in my head hmm. whenever this song played. And I realized the power that this stuff had over me. I, you know, everything else seemed kind of 
you know, bland compared to the magic that was happening listening to the radio and, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the thoughts that filled your head when you heard these songs. And I, I realized from that point on that the music was going to have a hold on me, and, and it has ever since. This is kind of the start of it all for me. Frida Payne with Band of Gold from 1970 on Sound Opinion. That is Frida Payne, Band of Gold on Sound Opinions, a defining song for me. Jim, what was a defining song for you? Well, you know, I, I've talked in the past about discovering the Frankie Lane album. My dad died when I was five, and he had left a, a behind a couple of records, and, and I was fascinated by that. I'm not going to go there, because I did it as a jukebox, Desert Island jukebox pick. Um, you know, and of course, the Velvet Underground, the first time I heard them, and the Beatles, first album I bought, the Blue yeah. album, the greatest hits album, uh, uh, with my own money, and Led Zeppelin, right? I'm listening to WNEW, WPLJ, across the river in Manhattan on the radio like you, um, you know, and you have about a decade on me. So I, I always felt like I was coming to stuff late, you know, discovering stuff late. And and the first song I'm going to play, I did discover late, uh, about 1982. The debut album by Wire, Pink Flag, comes out in 1977. I've talked about it before. Um, you know, sociologists talk about initiation into any subculture, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you don't grow up just being a hell's angel. You have to have somebody kind of teach you about the bikes and the rules and the dress and the coat. Same with, uh, you know, drug culture or 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 many, uh, you know, alternative lifestyles, right? Nobody knows this stuff. You're kind of initiated. I was in a band um, with a guitarist who had moved to Jersey City to be closer to Manhattan from uh, New Jersey, Don Jackson, self-proclaimed coolest black man in Trenton, New Jersey. That's how he introduced himself to me. He said, "Hey, I'm Don Jackson," and uh, and we were great buddies. And and he had, uh, you know, he was renting a room. He was living the artist lifestyle. Uh, he had his guitar. He had his amp. He had a futon and a record player, and that was it. That's all he had. You know. So we're sitting cross-legged on the floor one day, and he says, "I know you haven't heard this album." I said, "Mm-mm," and he plays. You know, puts the needle down. Track one, side one, wire, pink flag, Reuters. 
All right. Mm. You know, Robert Christgau uh, had written of that debut album, one of his rare, uh, you know, A pluses, I believe, um, that Wire would sooner revamp The Fat Lady of Limborg by Brian Eno. <laughs> Bing! All right. One of my all time favorites. Or Some Kind of Love by The Velvets, another all time favorite, than Let's Dance by The Ramones. But the strategy is almost the same, and yet their outlook is darker, and they're more complex, and they're artier. Here was a perfect 20 one song suite that I only realized many years later begins with a song about journalism. Second song mm-hmm. is too Field Day for the Sundays, right? Here's my two obsessions as uh, as like 18, 19 year old Jim Deere goddess journalism and music. And, uh, you know, this dark, dark song of a war correspondent uh, running out of tape filing dispatches from the front of an unnamed conflict murder, looting rape is going on around him he's horrified and uh, the tape's about to cut off and and so is he uh but he's doing his best as a journalist to report and i was just hooked you know wire changed my life a former wire cover band there's no gym if there's no wire here's where it starts reuters by wire from pink flag on sound opinions by Wire, one of my all-time favorite bands. One of the songs that made me, Greg, I bet I know where you're going next. (laughs) Well, there's a couple of places I could have gone. And, you know, my initial thought was uh, Lou Reed because he was such a defining artist for me. But I want to talk about an artist that I knew nothing about and had a similar impact on, uh, on my life right around the same time that I was, you know, developing my obsession with Lou Reed, and that was Patti Smith. Nobody told me about Patti Smith at the time. There wasn't a lot. She hadn't even put a record out yet, so there wasn't a lot to talk about. I, I would imagine that unless you had grown up in, in New York and, and, and had been aware of her poetry and some of her live performances, she wasn't a nationally known name at the time, certainly not in Milwaukee where I was going to college at the time, Marquette University. And, uh, you know, I, wa- I, w- I made a weekly habit of going to record stores and seeing what was there, just to sort of, because my music obsession was, was flowering every week. Uh, I wanted to get more stuff, more records, more records to listen to. And I just remember coming across the debut album by Patti Smith, the Horses album, 
mm-hmm. and being just completely, you know, mesmerized by that album cover, the image on the record cover. Robert uh, Mapplethorpe. That, that, that photo by Robert Mapplethorpe and, uh, and, and that image of Patty in black and white, uh, the black jacket slung over her shoulder. You know, I didn't know. Is that it, it almost looks like Keith Richards' you know, younger sister or something. I mean, they could have been twins, it seemed like to me. There's sort of an androgynous appearance about it, but it was very alluring at the same time. And it felt like she was, you know, luring me into this forbidden <laughs> world. Like, what's going on here? Like, I didn't yeah. quite understand the cover, but I knew that I was magnetized by it. And, you know, uh, without knowing about any of the music in it, other than what that album cover promised, I, I bought it. Went home and played it, and the first thing I hear, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. We should and insert as here a good, that we, we were both altar boys, so that yeah. must have had an impact. Oh, yeah, as a, as a good Catholic boy, uh, yeah. to hear those words was just, whoa, okay, so now you're, <laughs> you know, now you've got sacrilege on top of the, uh, you know, the, that, that album cover, and, you know, it turns your world upside down, and, and the record was every bit as good as I hoped it might be, uh, it sort of rewired my world a lot. That opened the door to everything uh, that came. The punk movement was just starting. Patty really wasn't a punk rocker, but she was part of that scene. And, and, you know, it was an easy, easy step into the Ramones and Talking Heads and television and Voidoids and Sex Pistols and Clash. Uh, all of that made sense in the context of that first Patty Smith record. Um, and the very first words, the very first song, that cover of uh, Van Morrison's Gloria... Uh, sort of opened the door. Uh, here's Gloria from Patti Smith on Sound Opinions. Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton pot of thieves Wild cord of my sleeve Thick Heart of stone, my sins, my own, they belong to me, me. People say beware, but I don't care. The words are just rules and regulations to me, me. Patti Smith, Gloria on Sound Opinions, the song that sort of blew my uh, young college mind in 1975. Back when you Jim, had what do you the got really next? frizzy hair, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that story's coming up. 
I, uh, you know, I, I was obsessed with punk rock. I was hearing The Clash and The Talking Heads and The Ramones uh, from my older cousins and uh, the records they had left me a few years before, you know, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and uh, Genesis and Yes and the progressive rock. But, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm touching on uh, aesthetic awakenings for young Jim. So rock as art really has to be wire is my discovery. Uh, number two, rock as sexual empowerment. Uh, my poor beleaguered stepdad, uh, who, who was a, my grammar school science teacher, uh, became my stepdad, took a, a group of us uh, when I was a freshman in high school to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight, right? And Mr. Reynolds was a Catholic school teacher. Uh, and, uh, you know, he didn't know except that there was like shouting and yelling and they threw stuff at the screen. And it was <laughs> like a good time, right? He didn't know about the sweet transvestite. He didn't yeah. know about don't dream it, be it. He didn't know about the hedonism of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, raised by a single mom until my 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 uh, mom remarried when when I was a sophomore in high school, and and um, you know, I, I just didn't have a clue about the world. I was so clueless about everything, especially the uh, the other sex girls. I didn't understand them. I didn't know nothing about them. Now I'm already voraciously consuming music. Uh, Patty Smith, like you, uh, that was a hand me down from my cousins. But I loved the Go Go's. I loved Joan Jett. Soon I loved X Ray Specs. To me, these weren't great female rock bands. They were just great rock bands, period, that had this other element of, of women in there. Uh, women often uh, expressing their power and often expressing their desires. But if I have to say, uh, one song made me realize uh, that, that rock and roll, uh, pop music can be very, very sexy, and it can be powerful to hear a woman expressing her desires. It's Susan Sarandon singing Touch a Touch a Touch Me in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, this is cheese. This is camp, right? This is way over the top. But I don't know. You know, it resonated with me. Uh, Susan knew what she wanted. She wanted the Frankenstein monster, who, you know, in the Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show is an Adonis bodybuilder, right? You know, I mean, that whole movie circa, like, like you know, like I said, freshman year in high school was like, Wow. And and then, you know, as I'm beginning to discover the path train to Manhattan and shopping at Bleecker Bob's and walking around the village, I say, like, okay, there's a whole lot I didn't learn about mm -hmm. in Catholic school about men, women, other genders, other orientations, other sexualities. Boy, it's a big world. Okay, thank you, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Here <laughs> it is on Sound Opinions. I was feeling done in. Couldn't win. I'd only ever kissed before. You mean she? Uh huh. I thought there's no use getting into heavy petting. It only leads to trouble and seat wetting. Now all I want to know is how to go. Tasted blood and I want more. More, more, more. I'll put up no resistance. I want to stay the distance. I've got an ish to scratch. I need assistance. Touch, 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 touch me.
Such a touch a touch me, Susan Sarandon, man, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Did you see that, Greg? When did you see it? Yeah, I saw it about five hundred times. I mean, it was one of those things you couldn't escape when you were a kid, right? It was the one of the illicit rites of passage of being a teenager. That's probably right? as alternative as Syracuse got. That's very true. When we come back, more of the songs that define our lives. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today, we are talking about the music that made us. The people we are, the critics we are. Uh, You know, every music lover has these touchstone songs, Greg. It may seem self-indulgent, but again, it was our Sound Opinions crew that said, hey, how about this idea? I think they want to know more about us so they can possibly blackmail us in in the future. Uh, What is your next pick? Well, you know, one of the themes uh, I, I'm starting to realize about some of the some of my picks um, and and what music has done for me is the diversity that it opened me up to. Um, like you, it seemed like there was a whole other world that our young selves didn't know anything about that music kind of opened the door toward, and 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 it was a very powerful thing for that reason. Um, my first roommate at college um, was a sophomore, a guy who was a year older than me. And um, came a, an African-American kid from Newark, New Jersey, and uh, just a totally different world from the one I grew up in. So rooming with this guy um, was a real education for me. Um, he, he was very kind to me and, you know, obviously knew that I was relatively inexperienced in the matters of uh, African-American culture and uh, took it upon himself to not only have a record player, but a, a great collection of records. And... Uh, and uh, play them for me um, at, at, at sometimes ear-splitting volume, which was amazing. The amount of music that he exposed me to in the span of a few short months, uh, Parliament Funkadelic, a, new, a renewed appreciation for Al Green, who I'd heard on Top 40 Radio but had no idea the depth of his music. Bands like War, Rufus, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool and the mm-hmm. Gang, Curtis Mayfield's solo, solo career. Uh, this was all stuff that was, was new to me at the time, or at least a, a very distant kind of uh, uh, music that I was not really familiar with, that I became uh, not only very familiar with, but very fond of in a very short period of time because of this, uh, my roommate Art's uh, attention. Um, the the one record that I want to highlight is uh, the Isley Brothers, um, whose 1975 album had just come out, The Heat Is On. And the Isleys, to me, um, were uh, a, a bridge band in many ways to the music that I was familiar with. I was I was familiar with a lot of uh, guitar-based hard rock growing up in upstate New York. That was my favorite kind of music then. So in Ernie Isley's guitar, I kind of heard something that I could immediately relate to um, as, as as something, oh, that's a touchstone toward the world that I come from. And at the same time, there was this militants about the song, this ferocity about the song. And whenever I would hear it, 
it connected the dots for me in a way that hadn't been ever done in my young life before. I remember flashing back the first or second time I heard this song to that image from the Olympics in 68 in Mexico City when John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fists oh, yeah. uh, as the national anthem was being played. Uh, and I, at the time, I didn't understand why they were doing that. I was probably all of about eight or nine years old, and I really didn't understand it. Well, the Isley Brothers song, Fight the Power, explained it to me. Here's the Isley Brothers with Fight the Power on Sound of That is Fight the Power from the Isley Brothers from 1975 on Sound Opinions, a defining song for me. Jim, you're next. Greg, I'm going to play another Fight the Power, the public enemy track. I first heard it, uh, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. I think we both have. I first heard it uh, in the film, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, who had gone to NYU. And my awakening to African-American music came when I was at NYU, you know, 82 to 86. And, uh, you know, I was I was devoted to WNYU, the college radio station, and they're playing this nascent sound that's coming together, hip-hop, right? You know, and and also the the weird avant-garde underground of New York at that time. Uh, I'm thinking of Liquid Liquid, right? Mm. You know, which gets sampled later, you know, many times, that bass line. You know, and and hip-hop wasn't doing a lot for me. I was more interested in where the samples were coming from, so I was going back and discovering Parliament Funkadelic and James Brown. And, and this whole new world of music, you know, but but public enemy, you know, suddenly here was a band with the power, intensity, aggression of of Wire or the Ramones, um, 
with the artistic ambition of the Velvet Underground in terms of those incredible avant-garde, dense, dense, dense productions by the Bomb Squad, and just, you know, the voice and the energy of the streets in New York, that that I'm going to school, and I'm working there, and, you know, I'm thinking New York's the center of the universe, and, you know, and again, this journalism thing, right? What did Chuck D say? Public enemy and rap are Black Mm -hmm. America's CNN. We are reporting the stories that aren't being told. Every which way, this just grabbed me, uh, you know. And and here is, like, the first song I'm discovering, like, which I'm almost peers of, you know, Chuck D, right? And that makes a difference, right? Because this other music I've been going back, and it's a couple of years. I mean, you know, back when, when you're 17, 18, you know, something coming out four years earlier might as well be 40, Right, mm-hmm. but this is coming out, and I'm in the middle of it. Uh, Fight the power by Public Enemy. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. I think uh, hip-hop in the 80s was so much more relatable to me, uh, you know, especially as a mainstream art form, because it was becoming mainstream then. But I think, you know, like when you think about Sucker MCs by Run DMC or The Message by Grandmaster Flash and Molly Mel and, uh, you know, Chuck, all of all of Public Enemies work during that period, it had EPMD so much more and, toughness yeah, 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 than yeah. Uh, what was going on in mainstream rock. Yeah. And fortunately, we had this other thing going on in rock, which was this underground scene that nobody was paying attention to except geeks like you and me and a few, other, a few of our, I'm sure many of our listeners. But it was not mainstream by any stretch. And Chicago at the time, you, you were out on the East Coast at the time. I was in Chicago. We had an amazing scene that had me going out every night that I wasn't working. I was working as an editor at the Chicago Tribune at the time. And uh, every night that I wasn't working the late shift, I was out seeing a show because there were that many shows in Chicago. I remember the indie scene here was so, so full of talent. Uh, And you could see all these bands for like five bucks a night. Naked Ray Gun, Big Black, Effigies, Mm -hmm. Green, Screeching Weasel, um, and this band, 11th Dream Day. And the reason I'm highlighting them above the others is that 11th Dream Day was, after seeing this band several times, was the band that really motivated me to you know, go to the Tribune and say, hey, I want to write about this band. You know, nobody, we're not writing about them. They should be written about because they're great. 
And it was as simple as seeing a bunch of shows and saying, you know, just feeling that inspiration. I've been doing a, a fanzine all along, and you know, I thought eh, time for a little little mainstream attention for these guys. If I can you do something, you wanted to get paid too. Yeah. To play my small part. It wasn't even about getting paid. I was just so excited about you know standing five feet away from the band and being blown away every night. And I think anybody who's had that experience, the difference between seeing a band in a club with a bunch of like-minded, uh, with a community, a small but dedicated community of fans versus seeing a band in a stadium, I mean, that's that's life-changing. It, 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 it just changes your perspective on everything. Going to see a band in a stadium versus being seeing it at a club, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a big stepping stone. And, and Chicago was, the club scene in Chicago in the 80s was amazing. 11th Dream Day was the band for me. Uh, 1988, an album called Prairie School Freakout was recorded in one day, uh, you know, cheaply recorded in a, in a Louisville studio. I think they recorded it all in about uh, 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 12 hours in a 12 by 15 foot room. And uh, you can hear the ferocity of, of the record, uh, of that environment in the songs. Uh, here's Death of Albert C. Sampson from 11th Green Day on Sound Opinion. That's 11th Dream Day, a band that inspires me to this day. Still going strong out of Chicago, but uh, man, when I saw them in uh, 87, 88, that, was, uh, that sort of turned my, uh, turned my life around. I became a uh, full-time writer after that at the Chicago Tribune, and I've been doing it ever since, much to the chagrin of many readers and listeners out there. <laughs> the ones who disagree <laughs> with us. Yeah. Yes, well, exactly. I mean, so, so I want to end on a song that uh, reaffirmed my faith in community and music as a center of it. The alternative explosion of the early 90s. We're both professional critics by that point. You're covering it for the Tribune. I'm covering it for the Sun-Times. There are plenty of reasons to be skeptical because, the, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, despite the boy band teen pop era that followed, it really is the last gasp of the old school music industry descending upon a new idea like Seattle and grunge and throwing money at it and ruining it. 
right? Yeah. You know, I flew out and interviewed Cobain uh, when In Utero was uh, getting ready to come out. It was one of only a handful of interviews he was going to do, and it was in part because he knew my work from fanzines. So I was, like, trustworthy for the daily newspaper kind of guys. And I remember now there is great debate on the Internet about what the lyrics really are to heart-shaped box. But I had a photocopy of a handwritten uh, lyric sheet that Cobain himself had done. And uh, I know how it, it was spelled on that lyric sheet, which is one of those things I lost. My God, if I only had that mm. today. Um, he says, hate, hate, H-A-I-G-H-T. Hate, hate, I've got a new complaint. Forever in debt to your priceless advice. Now, demographically, as a Gen Xer, we grew up being told everything that was great we'd missed in popular culture. Hmm. You know, I mean, I was I was six when the Beatles broke up, right? I, I was five at Woodstock, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, nothing was going to be as great as those vaunted 60s. It was an oppressive cultural lie that's been told for every generation since the boomers. Uh, you know, and I heard Cobain as singing, hate, hate, hate Ashbury, the epicenter of San Francisco summer of love 60s mythology rolling stone i've got a new complaint forever in debt to your priceless advice he is sneering at that and then you know the second person plural was always really important to kurt you know mm -hmm. think about uh, uh, uh smells like teen spirit here we are now entertain us right there's this alternative community, and it meant something, and we ain't them, and we ain't baby boomers, and we don't love hate Ashbury, and the Beatles were okay, but man, the Melvins, right? All of this was, uh, you know, a reminder to me at a point where, where you know, we're becoming professional rock critics, you and me, and, and the notion is we should be writing more about the Rolling Stones' latest mega tour and less about that. Who is that woman, Liz Fair, you keep writing about, Jim or Greg? Or, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. You know, the best music we've ever heard is being made next week in a basement somewhere. That's why we still do this show, and that's what Heart Shaped Box is about to me. Plus, you know, it's got all the great Nirvana, sweet, sour, loud, quiet, I was just beautiful Nirvana on Sound Opinions. Shaku. Sure. 
Heart-Shaped Box by Nirvana, a very heartfelt tribute to a, a great band that we both love. And, of course, we want to hear from you, the listeners. Call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and leave a message about a song that helped make you, perhaps one that defines you, or just one of those songs that defines a time in your life. You can also join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, we're going to explore Neil Young's album, Rust Never Sleeps, for its 40th anniversary. People can download Sound Opinions wherever they get their podcast thingies. The show was produced, as always, by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. This is Roe from Portland, Oregon. I was calling to talk about my best album of the year, which is Deserted by the Mekong. I've always been a Mekong fan, but I Bought this, listened to this album once streaming and was so impressed by it, I had to go ahead and purchase it, and I'm very glad I did. It's probably the best work they've done since the uh, mid-'80s, and was so good that it actually is making me reevaluate their entire catalog. It's great to hear an artist that's still out there and making some of their best music. Hi, my name is Bree. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And my best of 2019 is Shafiq Hussain's The Loop. It features everyone, like... Erica Badu, Anderson Hatch, Hiatus Coyote. After listening to it and like going back and like researching who he is, he has a project of everyone that I've known and loved. And on this project, every word of it is something that you know you need to hear. If you didn't know already, like perfect affirmations, you have to go listen to The Loop. Hey, Jim. Hey, Greg. This is Swan from Orlando, Florida, originally from Caracas, Venezuela. Just listening to your best albums of the year so far episode. A lot of great music, but also I noticed a worrying absence of rock in your list, uh, or at least, well, you know, the harder kind. And I've been listening nonstop to two albums, one that I haven't heard and one from a returning favorite. The one I haven't heard is... Future Dust by the Amazons is a UK band that I haven't even heard about until about a few months ago. And I can't stop playing these guys. These are, this is hard rock, like vintage with some new tinges that I just love.
And the other one is Golden Grey. That's the new album by hard rock band Baroness. They've been going on for a while. And I love it that they can sound as heavy as some of the great thrash of, of, of yore, but then throw in something melodic, almost new-agey, sometimes even in the same song, and they make it work. These are two great albums, and I love it. Take care, guys. Bye. I'm just calling to uh, let the guys know that I totally agree with their recent review of The National. However, they should check out the show, not for The National, but because Courtney Barnett opens, and her three-piece band blew The National seven-piece uh, member band out of the water. She was on fire. And I just wanted to uh, share with the guys, don't miss the National. Uh, don't stick around for them. Definitely check out Courtney Barnett on this particular tour. Force of Nature. Thanks, guys. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.